This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! <laughs> My name is Jared, and I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Austin. Yo, what up? And today we got a special guest. Uh, we have novelist and philosopher Lars Iver. How's it going, Lars? It's going very well, thanks. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, Lars and Austin are... Tell me a little bit about how you guys know each other. Well, it's actually kind of funny. So Lars is actually friends with Michael Burns, who mm. uh, I met at the University of Dundee when we were uh, doing postgraduate research there. And Lars is good friends with people in the department at the University of Dundee. And I did not know Lars at all while I was there. But Michael used to rave about Lars's books. And then my friend Troy, who I obviously do Owls at Dawn with, has also loved Lars's books. And um, so that was actually how I first found Lars. It was well before I actually ever even spoke with him. And then the way that we actually got connected in like real human terms, still through digital terms, I guess, was because of his most recent book, Nietzsche and the Burbs. And uh, it recently just came out. And I was like, I got to get this guy as a guest on our podcast and finally turn this name into a voice slash face. And, uh, and now, we have, now we have chatted a few times since then. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically how it works. You know, philosophy is a very small community, and uh, so I guess it, it, everyone kind of runs in similar circles. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I don't know which one of you it was, but somebody recommended that we do the movie Melancholia, which is the movie <laughs> we're talking about today, the 2011 film starring Kirsten Dunst, Kiefer Sutherland, Charlotte Rampling, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Stellan Skarsgård, Alexander Skarsgård, written and directed by Lars von Trier. As always, we're going to go around and get people's impressions about what was it like the first time you watched this movie and what was it like revisiting it for this podcast. So let's start with our guest. Let's start with Lars. The first time I saw this film, you know, I'm, I'm a real insomniac. So I see a lot of films, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. I just can't sleep. I go downstairs and I put something on. And this film, you know, I'd read about it in advance. I was excited. I was looking forward to seeing it. Last from Trier's films I'd followed, you know, over the years. So I put this film on and, you know, I was mesmerized from the very beginning because there's, there's this wonderful eight minute pre-credit sequence. We have these tableaus, which are like moving paintings, absolutely beautiful. I hadn't seen the light before. And then you cut to this, this extraordinary wedding scene, you know, the, the most traumatic wedding you could ever attend. This wedding reception, which is totally chaotic right there. I recognize that kind of scenario. I had that, that exactly those kinds of experiences myself. And you move on through the film to the second half and this wonderful last days of humankind leading up to the apocalypse. I could really relate and understand the kind of moods that ran throughout this film. Watching it again, well, I've watched it many times. I've watched this film probably 10 times, most recently yesterday, and I am every time in, in awe. I think it's extraordinary. Kirsten Dunst is amazing at the centre of this film. She's unlocking things I never thought she had in her. The interplay of the characters, but above all, the mood. 
the effects, this planet melancholia, I find it absolutely overwhelming. Mm. Very cool. Austin, what about you? I have a very strange relationship with this film in that the first time I saw this film, I shit you not, I was in a movie theater in Dundee, Scotland at the Dundee Contemporary Art Museum with a fellow graduate student, a philosophy graduate student, and we walked out. We walked out Whoa. because we thought this we thought this was the most like self-indulgent, pretentious piece <laughs> of art house wank. And then I walked out and we went out and had beers or whatever, but we couldn't stop talking about what we saw. And it was actually this film that kind of changed my film watching trajectory because I didn't I didn't enjoy how up his own ass I felt Lars von Trier was with how it was it was that like eight minute opening that our Lars was just talking about that I thought I was just like it just seemed disjointed and just simply there to be gratuitously pretty and it was actually the fact though that I couldn't get that out of my head and that I couldn't stop talking about it with my friend and then thinking about it in subsequent days and things like that and then it just came up in conversation that I started to realize that cinema could be something different than just simple enjoyment. It it actually, cinema can do something that is challenging, that can be provocative, that can transform you. So in ways, I think that this film actually was the thing that broke me from my like dogmatic stupor of just thinking films had to be happy and enjoyable and give me what it was that I was expecting. And then Whoa. since then, I have watched this film a dozen times probably, just as Lars has said, and I think it's magnificent. And it's now one of my favorite films. Lars von Trier is my favorite director. Um, whoa, the whoa. the Danes, he and Thomas Vinterberg, and I'd even say Nicholas Winden Refn have kind of become my favorites. The whole Dogma 95 thing became an obsession of mine after repeated viewings of watching this. And then I went through all of von Trier's filmography. This was the first of his films that I had seen. So this film holds such a special place to me. And I think it still is in a lot of ways, very sort of um, kind of self-aggrandizing. But I think that's what makes Lars von Trier so amazing as a director. Yeah, he's definitely not afraid to put himself <laughs> out there in, in a number of ways. Well, I mean, hasn't he uh, said he's the greatest film director, like, like, like alive? Like, he's, he doesn't even say that. He's like, I'm the greatest yeah. living film. Yeah, I mean, other than Tarkovsky, who he says is his muse, I think he sees himself as the greatest film director ever, so. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say that, Austin, because I had a similar experience. I did not walk out of the film, but I saw it for the first time at AFI Fest in Los Angeles, and Kirsten Dunst was there, uh... In, in attendance, and that was really special. Um, but I had seen Antichrist, really liked Antichrist, and I was expecting something similar, and I guess I did get something similar, but at the time, I thought that this movie was just a little bit overlong, a little bit boring, um, and I remember in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I know that the planet is going to hit and that life is going to end. And I felt like everything leading up to that was just unnecessary because I already felt like I knew it was going to happen. Uh, you know, so much of watching a movie is just based on the mood that you're in at that particular point, especially when it comes to an art house film like Lars von Trier movies. I honestly think I was just hungry <laughs> during this uh, <laughs> film screening and it made me a little bit, um, a little bit, antsy or something but I this is probably the second time I've seen this movie when I watched it last night for this podcast and it 
affected me pretty profoundly in that, especially the second half of the film, I felt myself having like panic attacks along with Charlotte Gainsbourg. I mean, not like a full-fledged panic attack, but I really did have this feeling of anxiety throughout that was very, it, it was far from boring. It was actually quite, it really grabbed me quite a bit. And I did not expect that from the second time viewing, but I would put this up with, you know, it, it is a, it lives up to the Depression trilogy. It's just as good in its own way as uh, Antichrist. And uh, I'm excited to talk about it further. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Before we go on, let's uh, dive into a recap. So it's the night of Justine's wedding to her husband, Michael. Despite the lavish affair appearing perfect in every conceivable way, Justine is fighting back severely depressive tendencies. When Justine's mother ruins the mood by casting doubt on the permanence of any marriage, it sends Justine spiraling into depression and spends the entire night fighting to appear as happy as her family wants her to be. After her sister Claire expresses disappointment in Justine's fake happiness, Charlotte spirals even further into depression to the point of consummating the marriage with someone other than her husband and cutting down her boss with sharp words. The wedding unceremoniously dies down and Michael leaves Justine to think things over alone. In part two, entitled Claire, we follow Justine's sister as she invites Justine into her home, and much to her husband's distress, helps her recover from her depressive episode. Meanwhile, Claire is consumed with anxiety that a large planet known as Melancholia is going to collide with Earth, but her husband assures her that all the smart scientists say that it won't. That night, the planet passes by and all are relieved, except Justine, who expects the worst to happen. The next morning, though, the planet is getting closer. Claire's husband kills himself, and Claire, knowing that the collision of planets is an inevitability, starts descending into a full-blown panic attack. Justine takes pity on Claire's son and suggests that they protect themselves by building a magical cave. Inside the cave-slash-stick fort, Claire, Claire's son, and Justine sit as Melancholia collides with Earth, ending life as we know it. End of movie. All right, guys, before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. So we're all stuck inside right now, some of us with nothing to do but keep our fingers crossed that things get back to normal as soon as possible. But one of the things you can do to keep your mind limber and keep yourself productive is to learn some new skills. That's where Skillshare comes in. If you're looking to explore new skills or get inspired or deepen your existing passions, Skillshare is an online learning community where you can explore and discover thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics like graphic design, productivity creative writing, film and video, freelancing, and more. If you're looking for a class to take, in the past I've recommended iPhone filmmaking, creating cinematic video on your phone, creative nonfiction, write truth with style with Susan Orlean, but today I want to recommend something a little bit more lifestyle oriented. Everyday Minimalism, Find Calm and Creativity in Simple Living by Aaron Boyle is the perfect class to take in these times where everyone is trying to live simply, cheaply, and find a sense of calm while being productive. So Aaron will teach you how to navigate stressful situations and how to make the best with less, not more, 
and less is more is something and simple living are both things that I live by. So I definitely recommend Aaron's class. So when you compare Skillshare to expensive in-person workshops or night classes, it's actually quite affordable. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. And right now they're offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months. All you got to do is go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack for two free months of unlimited access to awesome classes. And uh, I say this with zero authority, but I really hope that quarantine is over by the time those two (laughs) free months have ended. But uh, who who the heck knows? But anyway, <laughs> back to the show. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, all right, my first question is, whose idea was it to talk about this movie and, and why were they particularly drawn to this one? Was it Lars's idea or was it Austin's idea? Austin, I think it was your idea. We were discussing films as part of the podcast. Um, it must have been a couple of months ago. And we were talking about Hans Malik. We were talking about Lars von Trier. And we talk about this film coming out in 2011 at the same time as Tree of Life. And something amazing about this, both these films, these, these dramas, which are rooted in a, in a family situation and yet open out into the cosmological, something amazing, these two films came out in the same year. Mm. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. And, and I think I made the comment that at this time, like if you were remotely involved in the world of academic theology or philosophy and you were involved in the blogosphere, you had a stake in the debates that were going on. Like everyone was writing little think pieces about both of these films. And then, of course, with Antichrist as well, because of the whole nature being Satan's church and, and the kind of some of the interesting mythology that that is in that film as well with them being named like he and she and stuff like that. So it's kind of an Adam and Eve retelling. So there's something really interesting. I, I think there's a lot of meat to chew on in these. But it was actually because, so Lars's most recent book is called Nietzsche and the Burbs. And in it, it's about these teenagers in suburban England that are dealing with like what we might call middle class ennui or something along those lines. You know, just dealing with existential dread of like nothing happening. Everything is the same or everything is mapped out. Everything is bland. And so they're trying to find capital L life in the midst of all of this. And they constantly reference, or I don't know about constantly, but a handful of times they reference Melancholia, the film. And it's oh, almost okay. like they experience they experience the dread of being in the suburbs in a very similar way as what what the people in the film Melancholia are experiencing. Just this impending doom. Um, it, and I think it's so interesting because the film Melancholia, it's it's almost so on the nose. Like there's no subtlety, right? Like 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 with with a lot of times when people are exploring ennui or or grief or depression there's like a trigger or there's a cause and there's something that happens but it's really like handled subtly this film is like no no there's a literally a fucking planet that is going to wipe out the earth you know the end of it you know it's like going to see titanic you know the end of the film (laughs) you know you kind of know what's going to happen but that's not the point really The, the, the point isn't so much about the event so much as the effects of like the anticipatory effects of just staring into the abyss i guess you could say or staring into the ultimate demise of everything and i and i thought that was really interesting i and I, there was actually a line in this time walking or watching the film that i really think kind of almost sums everything up if we could say it sums up like von trier's philosophy kirsten dunst is sitting there um her character's justine right and she's sitting there with claire charlotte gainsbourg's character and she says earth is evil and she says no one's going to miss it 
And I thought that was so interesting because I feel like that's kind of, which is very different because Claire's character, she's going to miss it. And the reason she's going to miss it is because she's like, where is my child going to grow up? Like, where where mm-hmm. is she going to have this possibility for life to continue to persist? She wants it to persist. But Justine, from the very beginning of the film, is almost on the side of the planet because it doesn't really matter. Because for something to matter, something has to happen. For something to happen, it has to be a disruption. But for her, that disruption has already been. She's living that disruption. It's almost like she's internalized that disruption. And so the planet crashing is almost like the almost too on-the-nose motif, the concept come real. And I thought that was really interesting. That's a very interesting idea. I mean, that, that moment where she and Claire are talking and Justine says, life on Earth is evil. Life on Earth is, is not going to be there any longer. I know these things. You know, I, I know things like this. It's incredibly powerful. There's one of these amazing moments in the film um, where you see this great despair breaking out but that despair is almost contradicted by what happens later. On the one hand, Justine is telling us that, you know, it's, 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 it's better not to be born, it's better, better not to exist. But then, as the film moves towards its conclusion, there's these wonderful, tender scenes where Justine looks after her nephew and she proposes to her nephew, they build this imaginary fort, this, this teepee, out of some branches in the wood. And she sits in there with her nephew and with her sister and they hold hands. And for the first time in the film, you see Justine smiling. And what's wonderful here is a sense in which perhaps, perhaps for Justine in that moment, you know, life isn't evil. Life is something rich. Life is something intense. It's worth living. Okay, these might be the last moments of your existence, but in those moments, Life is no longer evil. Mm. Do you think that, that, that in order for life to be not evil, it requires being that close to destruction? Or do you think that there's something about that? Like standing on the precipice, on the edge, that that's why she's able to finally experience that. Whereas before, she's got this lavish wedding and she doesn't enjoy it. Uh, everyone is like forcing her to enjoy and it's like she, they're like you must enjoy i spent so much money on this and this is a time of celebration you know yeah. society all i demands. ask is that you be happy <laughs> yeah right like, like that's the which which of course you know for uh, audience members i'm gonna have to use the c word here but capitalism tells you to enjoy and be happy right and so i wonder yeah. if there's a sense in which this film is kind of almost existing in a different world outside of consumerism outside of the kind of positivity that you get from um like social media happy culture consume 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 and claire is always kind of like the revolutionary subject because she just simply refuses it all but and then on the other yeah justine i'm sorry yeah and then on the other side of all of that at the very end she's able to to kind of actually enjoy for the first time because it's it's beyond all of those pleasures or, or those uh those kind of like compulsions to enjoy and now she's found like a true moment of freedom maybe or something it is in oh no i was gonna say it is a really interesting contrast between the two sisters and how justine is uh well it's just interesting that claire is almost like this neurotic who is desperately clinging to life whereas kirsten dunst is kind of being liberated in her ability to let go of it as if, because it was always something that she didn't really want. Yeah, I mean, Justine is someone who 
is surrounded by illusions when we first meet her. At the beginning of the film, she works in advertising and her boss is right there at the wedding and the boss is the best man of her husband. The husband might seem like a nice guy. We might even feel sorry for the husband. But the husband's best man is this absolute ogre who's in charge of the advertising agency for which Justine works. So Justine is right at the heart of the capitalist machine. She is manufacturing illusions. She's trying to sell things to people who already have too much. And Justine is right there um, at, at her own wedding. She's supposed to be all compliant with her husband. She's supposed to be so grateful to her brother-in-law for hosting this wedding. She's supposed to be so obedient to her sister who's giving her guidance. She's supposed to be uh, critical of, patient with her parents, you know, who are, who are these awful, awful people. The whole wedding is a fantasy. And what's amazing about Justine is that she breaks through this fantasy. She doesn't want this life. Claire, her sister by comparison, is very happy with fantasy. All Claire wants to do is to please the people around her. All Claire wants to do is make sure everyone around her is behaving according to the usual social script. But Justine tears up that script. And that's what the characters in my novel really admire. Instead of plowing along, instead of smiling and smiling and smiling, what Justine does is to break out of the hotel. She drives off in a golf course, uh, on a golf cart. She's pissing in the golf course. She's having sex with some random guy on the golf course. She is not the obedient bride. And that's what's so revolutionary about her. Mm. I thought it was really interesting. A lot of people, they draw the Ophelia comparison here. Because uh, especially with that iconic image of her in the water, yeah, exactly. And and I thought there's something though that's so interesting that's so non uh, Shakespearean in the sense that there's no event like Ophelia. She is she supposedly goes quote unquote mad because of events that trigger. I think it's her father's. At, uh, is it Polonius who who dies? Um, and then that kind of starts the her descent into madness and then um so she kind of becomes in psychoanalysis and in psychology and stuff like that one of the quintessential kind of motifs for the hysterical woman right um but what's interesting about this is there's no event that triggers it like there's no reason explicit reason like there's not like a man that dies or comfort that dies or something that triggers it she's just always already beyond she's always already rejecting because and, and then the only thing that they can say, Claire says it multiple times when she apologizes for Justine, and she says, oh, she's just really sick. She's sick. She's sick. And that's all she'll ever say. But what what is this sickness that she has? It's, it's, it's something that's very different. So it's kind of got that Ophelia vibe to it, but there's a, a little bit of a, a transformation of it. It's not justified. It's kind of just this ontological condition that she has rather than like, I don't know, some sort of psychological break because... Uh, a dude in her life died or something like that, you know? So it's kind of interesting from that perspective. One of the things I really uh, like is that one of the last things that she says that kind of connects her, the inevitability of this depressive episode that she has is that when her husband is about to walk off, she says, yeah, but what did you really expect? Yeah. And uh, he says, good point or something like he that. He just says, yeah. I think and he just says, yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah, and so almost like her 
going into this episode is almost as inevitable as the planet crashing in to Earth. And this brings me to something that Kirsten Dunst said at, I believe this was at Cannes when it premiered. I think this was, wasn't this the movie that got Lars von Trier like kicked out of Cannes for a little bit? Because <laughs> he made some weird comment about how he like identifies with Hitler or yeah, something he under, like he that. Yeah, he understands Hitler or some shit like that, yeah. <laughs> He's just such a fucking troll. Anyway, so <laughs> Kirsten Dunst said, Justine was a very sensitive, creative human being that felt things more than other people. And to me, her relationship with the planet turns into her being a representation of the planet. So do you guys read this? Because I don't really read this movie as necessarily any kind of one-for-one metaphors here. I've heard a lot of people say that this movie is an extended metaphor for depression, that the planet itself represents depression. I'm curious if you guys have any kind of on-the-nose readings like that that kind of bring it all together. It's difficult to sum it all up in that way. I mean, the, the film is rich. For me, what, what is the planet? The planet is yeah. indifference. It's the indifference of the universe. The, the universe does not care whether we exist or not. The universe is not good, but nor is it evil. And that's why I find Justine's remarks on the evil of life, I find those um, pretty implausible remarks. Uh, th- th- those, are, those are remarks you want to move away from because they, these, are, these remarks are the sort of thing you find in the book of Genesis when you get the great flood. When God judges the world, says the world is evil, I'm going to flood it all, we're going to have a new creation. So for me, um, these, these, are, these are things to move away from. What melancholia is, is the utter indifference of the universe to human beings. It's sort of the sort of thing that Werner Herzog talks about as seeing in the eyes of the bear in that film Grizzly Man. He says, you know, in, in, in the eyes of the bear, all I see is the coldness and the cruelty of the universe. And that's what melancholia is. Melancholia is the reality of the non-organic world. Isn't there something really interesting, too? There's this scene when uh, Claire says, you know, after the planet... Uh, supposedly passes and they're she thinks that they're in the clear and she says to Kiefer Sutherland she says it's friendly like it looks friendly and I think there's a really lovely juxtaposition there you've got her sister Justine who says you know that earth is evil life is evil um, and that's 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 fine no one's gonna miss it when it's gone um, this planet coming from the beyond is kind of like the assurance of that nothingness but then this threat actually at one point when viewed as not being a threat or when viewed through a different lens or under a different context, all of a sudden it's friendly, not beautiful, which I think is really interesting. Like, why is it friendly? And there's something interesting about that. That There's some themes here that I think make it so that you can't just simply kind of just buy into a simple black and white meaning because I think there's a lot of richness. I don't think like Von Trier is sitting down trying to like expound philosophical themes but i know that he does suffer from depression himself and um that i think uh i think it's justine uh, i'm sorry um uh, kirsten dunst who has even said that like one of the reasons this film is so interesting is because there's a lot of him there's a lot of von trier in justine's character and uh and like he's even kind of said that himself and so there's something really interesting about this film as being just an expression of all of these tensions and anxieties that allow the film to kind of, yeah, it is about depression, and yeah, it is about, like, existential dread, and yeah, it is about uh, the blandness of consumer capitalism, and yeah, it is about, like, you know, kind of breaking free from that. But it's, it's, there's just, it's kind of a little, it's got so much richness there that you can unpack, that you can't just simply say it's either, you know, this one thing or it's this other thing. And even if Von Trier does kind of think 
you know that nature is evil like he made made do from the film antichrist and now you've got melancholia maybe he's wrong in that sense and not wrong in the sense that like oh it disqualifies him but maybe it's just that he opens up a provocative space for thought but he hasn't allowed he hasn't really resolved anything yet and i think that what you kind of get at the end then is is maybe his recognition that he hasn't resolved it because what you have is this imaginary imaginary tent that like saves you and so maybe there's a sense in which like art or the imagination or creativity gives us something that can be like a salve or some kind of preserver in the face of doom you know so there's kind of like a but he doesn't really know and maybe that's why Kirsten Dunst Justine smiles at the end because she's kind of just bathing in the imagination but it's not really a resolution there's no real answer to how to address all these things Oh, see, I think that the movie is much more into just negating everything than that. Because even at the very beginning during that eight-minute sequence that Lar- R. Lars was talking about earlier, there's the there's that Bruegel painting that is being burned. It's like, I feel like there's just like this ultimate leveling, or even the value of art is being flattened in the face of annihilation, whether it's, you know, someone who is a neurotic who's worried about her children. Everything is just being leveled by the great leveler death you know um and i so i don't really see any glimmer of hope in there whether it be for art or anything um one question is what do you guys think about uh the wagner piece that keeps on coming back the prelude to tristan and isolde um an interesting choice because it's definitely a more romantic piece of music whereas this seems i wouldn't really call this movie very romantic I would call it kind of a little bit more dismal and anxiety-inducing, but it just keeps coming back, that that intro ditty. Uh, what do you guys think about that? I was thinking, um, Lars von Troyer himself said that in this film, he wanted to plunge into German romanticism. This is his German romanticism film. And what's um, interesting in this prologue is the, uh, the we only hear part of, the, of, the, of, this, of this prologue. We only hear part of this, of this, of this um, piece of Wagner's music. It's, it's the famous unresolved Tristan chord. It's full of unfulfilled longing. It's full of a kind of churning hope. Nothing really gets settled. Things move. There's emotional turmoil, but also a kind of a kind of inertia or suspension. Uh, the inability to to ever have done with anything. And that's why here, here we get a beginning and we get no real resolution. A continual build up. We remain on a threshold, a tension, but we never get this release or this catharsis, perhaps until the very end of the film. Mm. I wonder if this is his most, maybe not most, but it's definitely one of the more explicit mystical films of of his uh, au revoir. And the reason I say that is because there's also this skepticism about science which is really interesting, right? The scientists get the calculations wrong. And Kiefer Sutherland is the man of science. And he's the man of science who gets proven wrong. And his only way out is he has to kill himself because he's a chicken shit, right? Because all of his calculations and all the things that gave him meaning to help to understand things don't work. And I think there's a perfect way of thinking about Zizek's distinction here between the hysteric and the obsessive. Uh, He says that the uh, hysteric is someone who maybe they don't act out in a quote-unquote truthful manner, but they're at least nevertheless responding to the truthful 
situation, the truth, the anxiety of the situation. Whereas the obsessive has to cover everything, has to deny the reality of the situation, and they have to cover everything through order and through plans or through scapegoating. He also latches on um, by talking about like fascism and Nazism as being obsessive as opposed to hysterical. The hysteric is at least responding to the truth of the anxieties, for example, of the socioeconomic system, right? So clearly it seems that Justine is the quote-unquote hysteric in this, if we're going to use this binary. Whereas Kiefer Sutherland's character is the obsessive. Claire is also the obsessive. She has the schedule at the wedding, right? 11.30 is this. This has to happen. People have to do this, blah, blah, blah. And then slowly all of those things start to crumble. All of the structures that give meaning, that, that allow the obsessive to have order in a world of chaos, those things start to crumble because in the face of melancholia, the planet, you can no longer remain. There's a point, there's a breaking point. You can try to kind of maintain the order, but there's ultimately like a final breaking point that breaks the bounds of that. Whereas maybe that's why Justine is not affected because she's always been beyond all of that kind of obsessive control. She's always responded to the anxiety, the truth of the anxious moment or something something along those lines. And so I think that's kind of what you get also with Kiefer Sutherland and this anti-scientism that then reveals to us something beyond, outside of the tendency of the need to quantify and to calculate and to order. And then what ends up happening is that when you realize that all those plans and all of that prognosticating is actually wrong, what are you left with? You're left with either absolute bleakness or nothingness, or you're left with the three people sitting in an imaginary tent holding each other's hands while humanity is destroyed, while life is destroyed. And what does that mean? I don't know, but it seems to me to kind of leave some kind of hope or excess or joy or something that is, that is almost indescribable. And that's why I think it's a very kind of mystical film and maybe his most like Tarkovsky-esque film. He says that he loves Tarkovsky the most. Tarkovsky is constantly understood as being like a mystical filmmaker, right? There's all of these interesting powers and things like that that appear in Tarkovsky's films. So maybe there's something also mystical in this film as well that we can kind of think about, if that makes any sense. I mean, yeah, we see that... I mean, I don't know how literal is supposed to take this as plot points, but we see those images of Kirsten Dunst with like the kind of electricity coming off of her fingers. We see the uh, snow during the seemingly warm day but I find it interesting that you think that Kiefer Sutherland's character is a man of science because I almost saw him as constantly in denial because he doesn't let Claire go on the internet to look at other scientists and he even says because I almost thought as I didn't know until he was looking through the telescope on the morning that melancholia started getting closer I didn't think of him as a man of science because I thought of him as somebody who was just saying almost kind of sounds like a creationist or something like that who says that all the correct scientists are saying A instead of B. And the fact that he was really angry at his wife when she would search on the internet for other opinions didn't really seem to me to be the most scientifically sound direction to give your wife. Yeah, he's definitely a dogmatist. That's the thing. He is he is dogmatic. The question is, is, is he the creationist that is denying other scientists because he's just so fixed or is he kind of like a dogmatic scientist like is he a dogmatic naturalist or something along mm -hmm. those lines and and sh yeah he says when dealing with science and calculations of this magnitude you have to account for a margin of error he brings this up in the film he does seem to waver between certainty and dogmatism and a kind of skepticism he talks about a margin of error and there's a sense in which he's, he's becoming more and more anxious for me what john embodies 
is a horror of of Claire's uh, stresses and vulnerability. What he wants to be is the opposite of hysterical. He wants to be someone who is in control of himself. And that's why he avoids hysteria by killing himself before melancholia hits the earth. He cannot bear to be anything other than in control, uh, in charge of things, masculine, according to that normal yeah. understanding of that, of, that, of that masculinity. So he is the man's man. And that, that's why he has, to, he has to kill himself because he cannot bear to become what for him is being feminized. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, we've got obviously three, three dudes on this podcast right now, but remember when we did Antichrist and we had an, a long discussion about whether or not Von Trier actually like likes women? Uh, that was actually yeah. brought up, right? And um, I actually read an interesting article about melancholia, and I can't remember the woman's name, but um, it was basically, you can just Google melancholia and Ophelia and then like feminist film and it'll come up because the tagline of the of the title of the article was is melancholia a feminist film and the author she basically argues that there is something kind of ironically maybe for for von trier there's something really profoundly feminist and empowering in this film precisely because i think of what our lars was just indicating you have the masculine figure of john who cannot allow for quote-unquote hysteria they can't allow the truth of responding to the anxiety of the condition of of grief or depression or of uh, of demise you can't allow that to actually express itself so you have to continually push it away or you have to calculate it away or whatever and it's something that's so interesting because really the the heroes in this film are those who respond to that anxiety who allow like an honest truthful connection to that ontological condition that's what wins and that's the kind of quote-unquote feminine here that's justine and claire and then when you think about that that von trier says that this is like or they say that this is like his most personal film that he is kind of justine then you kind of see oh there's something interesting maybe within himself as a complex figure that he's trying to reconcile these two different sides maybe right the kind of like stereotypical notion of the masculine and then the kind of like uh I don't know if you would call it a caricature side or whatever, the, the motif, if you will, of the feminine as being these kind of opposite polarities or just differential polarities. And, uh, and, and there's something interesting in that as well that I think we could kind of explore, you know? Yeah. I wish Amanda was here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I got a question. Why do you guys think that the horse and the golf cart won't cross that bridge? That's a tough one. That's a really tough one. It seems to look back. The whole film recalls that, that film by Alan Rene, um, Last, Last Year in Marienbad. They can't get out of that thing either, can they? They can't escape there either. But I don't know what it is. I guess when I, when I was thinking about the horses last night, and I was thinking about um, you've got horses and you've got, uh, you've got a golf cart, you've got a car, you've got um, technology and you've got the animal, the physical. But, you know, I'm not sure where I, where I take that. I'm not sure if I understand exactly what's going on there. Always, I wanted I wanted them to cross into the village and see what happens in the village. Even very interestingly for me, there's that character who's a who's a sort of servant of the household. And they call him that by a sort of strange nickname. They call him Little Father, I think they call him. And he has a family and he has a you know home situation in the village. And I think Claire at one stage, you know, amazingly doesn't even know anything about his life in the village. So I'm not sure what it is, but the removal. These people live in this in this elite um, bubble, bubble in this uh, boutique hotel, 
And it's almost as if they can't bear, they can't face going to the village because that is where ordinary people might live. Yeah, I was almost wondering on this watch, which I hadn't thought before, but I was almost wondering if we could say that the house serves as, uh, it serves as like earth under capitalism. And what I mean by that is it's the place where the command to enjoy is. It's the place where the expectation to be happy and to have your shit together, everything is there. Like everything is manicured and it's provided for you. It's self-sufficient. Like you can't have anything that is disruptive, right? There's that big moment and it's because Claire has this frustration or anxiety. And so John is kind of like, you know, to to Justine when he gets these supplies just in case the power goes out. He's like, don't tell Claire because we don't want to upset her. Because again, anything that might be from the outside, if it comes in, it's going to disrupt the harmony of like the salvific logic of capitalism, right? And so I wonder if there's something there. And this makes me think of... um, We've talked about him a lot on this podcast, but Byung-Chul Han in the chapter, the first chapter of his book, The Agony of Eros, writes about melancholia. And for Byung-Chul Han, consumer capitalism, late neoliberalism is all about, it's defined by the logic of positivity, right? That there is no negativity. There's no encounter with the other. Everything you get is perfectly in line with your own desires. It, nothing is a break. There is no excess anymore. And he calls it the inferno of the same which is, I think, a lovely inversion of Sartre's hell is other people. This is actually, there is no otherness, right? Uh, We are actually trapped in the inferno of the same, just the repetition of always the same stuff. And I think this house, this place is that. And so you can't leave and go outside of that because in a way, there is no outside of it. There is no village, at least from the perspective of our protagonists and our gaze and our experience. There is no outside. It's only this thing. And you can't even... You can't even cross the threshold. You can't get outside. And even animals are trapped within it. Like even they won't let you get outside. You may want to think you can, but even nature like has been corrupted or has been enclosed within this kind of logic. And that and maybe that's kind of it. And I was thinking that it's almost like it's almost even though it's I don't think it's quite as metaphorical as Antichrist is, which I think is like an explicit retelling of of Adam and Eve, there's almost something that we could think about here as this being metaphorical, that, that this land, this property is earth under capitalism. Mm, interesting. I think th- during my entire viewing of this film, I was al- always thinking of death as like the ultimate leveler. And so I was thinking like even something like a horse is asserting its preference over the human because now in the face of death you know horse human the hierarchical structure just falls apart and it becomes leveled and that even maybe applies even to a golf cart even though it's inanimate and then more to this point um one of my favorite things i don't know if i'm reading too much into this but you know we get that eight minute segment at the beginning that lars was talking about and it ends with melancholia swallowing up earth and all in that collision where all life ends and then it cuts to the limo scene where they spend seemingly, I don't know, tens of minutes or possibly even hours. I mean, they're two hours late to their own wedding, just trying to avoid just the smallest collision of like making sure that the limo doesn't hit a rock because it's it, the guy who's driving it doesn't own the car and he doesn't want to get in trouble with his boss. And just how ultimately, like, I don't know if he's trying to say that that collision is just as meaningful as the collision between melancholia and earth. Yeah, yeah. And then and you're making there's cuz there's an introduction of class then at that point, right? You've got the driver who's really worried that if they get a scratch. But then 
Kirsten Dunst drives the car and she crashes into the rock and then they just laugh about it because I almost, in my mind, they don't say this, but, you know, the husband comes over, the younger Skarsgård comes over and uh, he gives her a kiss like, don't worry about it. It's almost like we can pay for it or who gives a shit. Like, it's not that big of a deal. This is funny, right? Whereas for them, it's it's funny and for him, the, the actual limo driver, this is a big friggin' deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's, that's very interesting. I never thought of that. It's a wonderful opening of the of the um, whole marriage sequence, the um, the car, the absurdity of the situation they're in, where it will not, you know, you can't navigate this narrow, winding country road with this stretch limo. And this is this is somehow this is the the the, the house itself is um, the bubble, a nouveau riche bourgeois fantasy, a desperate bourgeois fantasy with a with with horses and a butler and an old castle. Um, this is this is where the fantasy meets its 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 limit. You know, um, when you're dealing with anything outside of it, when you're dealing with real people. Can I ask you guys a question? I I wonder, and I still don't know because, and this is maybe where Jared and I kind of had a little bit of a different reading on this. I still do think that there's something in this film about the power of the imagination or art as being some kind of potential quote unquote salvation, or maybe like the only thing that gives us anything in a world that is facing impending doom or in a life that is ultimately grounded by some kind of like abyss or something like that, right? Um, a, a void that is constantly staring at us. What can give us joy and cause a smile and actually maybe give us some semblance of meaning? It's art. And the, one of the other things that I was thinking about is the bit where Justine goes into the study um, and she takes all of the the... the the books with all of the paintings and she opens them up seemingly to pages that she prefers like whether she enjoys them or whatever and one of them is, is the famous Ophelia painting but there are all kinds of other things right and she puts them on display what it what's going on there do you think because we if she is if she is the hysteric always already like that is her condition and she's not under the illusion of what everyone else is kind of trapped into particular her sister Claire then how do you think we understand that set of actions? Yeah, I guess for me, um, when we have theodicy, you know, this idea that we can justify suffering by appeal to, to God's plan, we have, the, we, have, we have theodicy in the West for centuries and centuries. And then, you know, God dies and people don't believe in theodicy anymore. People don't believe you can justify suffering through God's plan. What you get in its place is art. And you get a kind of aesthetic theodicy where you say, okay, we can redeem the world by making some kind of artwork some kind of artwork yeah. that will explain all the suffering and make sense of it all. And there it will be. It's something which is not real. It's a figment of our imagination. But nevertheless, you know, it has its redemptive power. Now, that might be something we want to call into question now. I mean, maybe we're coming to the end of yeah. aesthetic theodicy too. But that's something that does seem at stake in the film. But you wonder at the end, that yeah. TP, that TP is so important. The TP is so frail, it's so vulnerable, it's let's pretend. It's Justine reaching out to her, her nephew and saying, okay, you know, your father's gone. We're, we're, we've, got, we've got apocalypse, it's about to happen, but we can still pretend. And this, this artistry is somehow the site where, of something ethical, where people can hold hands together and be together. So there is something profound going on here. In that moment when she, when Justine is replacing the artworks in the study, what she tends to do is replace abstract works with, with works with, where you have people, 
but you have real people of some kind or another. What's fascinating there is you've got the Bruegel um, Land of Cocaine um, painting. Well, that painting is what the advertising um, picture earlier on in the film is a version of. You remember that um, oh. Justine's, Justine's boss flashes up, you know, he has, a, he has some kind of PowerPoint at the wedding itself, and he shows this image. And that image is, is, a, is an up-to-date version of The Land of Cocaine by Bruegel, except it features this, these, these glossy models, and Justine's supposed to come up with some kind of tagline. So something's interesting going on here about art. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Yeah, I don't think I can do any better than that either. Um, before we get to the mailbag, I have one last question uh, about this movie is, uh, what did you guys think about the father and the fact that he left early? Justine is always saying, Dad, I have to talk to you. My initial reading of this was just that she wanted to make some excuse to get away from the husband, but... You know, I think we can all agree that the mother character is this kind of awful, jaded, just shrewd woman who doesn't mind ruining her daughter's wedding. But was there anything more we're supposed to take from the father? Like, like, why did he leave early? Like, and why he said like the, it was a a deal he couldn't refuse to leave early? And did there's did Justine actually? No, yeah. yeah, no, no. There's something so interesting about the dialogue in this film because it's often cryptic. And then sometimes, like like that bit you were talking about with, like, with Claire and – I'm sorry, with Justine and her husband when she's like, well, how did you think this was going to end? It kind of comes out of nowhere. It's almost a little stilted and awkward. And I think it's because there's, there's something really interesting about these people as being archetypes or as being, as, as being like embodiments of concepts and – I didn't realize I didn't think about that until this viewing. I started thinking about them in that way, and it actually kind of makes me want to revisit it now and think about that even more proactively from the beginning because I didn't start thinking about that until about halfway through. But I wonder if we could almost think of the father like I think our Lars just said like he's the buffoon. He's the he's crass, right? Like he mocks the waiters at the beginning by being like, "Oh, we don't we don't have our spoons," and then he picks them up and he throws them in his pocket, oh, clearly yeah, in yeah, view yeah. so they can see it. And there's like a there's a real tastelessness in how he treats other human beings, whether or not he comes from money himself or he's just enjoying being in a position where he can abuse that power that he has. There's something about him kind of fulfilling that that role and which we might say is like, I don't know, kind of makes him uh, an unethical person. And so maybe there's something that, that, that we can take into that as well, like that he – he he lacks a certain kind of moral fiber of of what we would consider that should maybe exist for a father, um, especially on a wedding day or, or something. But I don't know. There's something there's something interesting about him as maybe being like some kind of like embodiment of like a an archetype, like the buffoon character or like uh, the opportunist, right? Like or the the whatever it is. There's something about him that is kind of interesting. This buffoon doesn't speak truth. It doesn't speak truth like Shakespeare's fool. In, King's, in King Lear. I remember over and over again, he says to Justine, are you happy? Are you happy? I always think that's the most intrusive question you can ask anybody. I, always, I, I can't stand being asked whether I'm happy or not. And the way, the, way he, the way he asked that question is to presume that Justine can only be happy. So for me, I wonder about his depth or complexity as a character. There's something to think about. He seems to be a fool who just is a fool, you know? Um, I'm not sure if he has any other dimensions to him. Yeah, what were you thinking, Jared? 
I don't know. I didn't know if there was some uh, sordid history uh, behind it. I didn't know if... I guess I was just curious as if there was actually any substance to what she wanted to talk to him about or if it was just her trying to get away from her other family members. But she did seem to find some sort of solace in him or at least some sort of hope that she would be able to, uh, you know, maybe escape the other family members Mm -hmm. and find some sort of peaceful equilibrium with him, but it just doesn't happen. I was going to say, this is one of the things that I love about this film is that he doesn't spend time in backstory. Like, we don't understand why Justine's parents hate each other why is the mom the way she is whereas like most of the time and this is why i also think it's kind of a mystical film in the sense that like science always wants to explain everything materialism always has to have some sort of historical answer or something along or historical materialism does right there's always some sort of answer there's a reason we can create a genealogy and get to the source you know like person who has daddy issues it's because their dad abandoned them there's always some sort of justification there's no fucking justification in this film it doesn't justify it I mean, the panic coming from the planet that's coming, that's interesting. But that's not about the past. That's about the future. So it's like a future impending doom. But there's something about the past that's always being mysterious. And we don't really know. And that's why the dialogue is so interesting to me. Because it's always already presuming a history that we don't have access to. And so we just get this strange dialogue that's like, well, what did you expect? Like when Justine is talking to her husband. Or like, uh, it's a deal that I can't pass up. Or it's all this stuff that they know or at least they act upon this shared understanding, but we don't know. And maybe because there's there's something mysterious about the past that we're just not ever allowed to have access to. It's like John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, right. All right, we're going to go into the voicemails. You can hit us up at 213-534-8807. We got a voicemail about last week we did Watchmen. Lars Austin, have you seen Zack Snyder's Watchmen? Sure, yeah. Okay, cool. We got a voicemail from Diane. Go, Diane. Hey, Wise Craig. This is Diane from California. And I just wanted to say, you know, I found the Watchmen podcast to be really insightful. But I was just wondering what you guys thought of the idea that Snack Fighters kind of glorification of the violence and things undercuts kind of what Watchmen was saying. Like, I know you and Alec kind of talk about in the video that um, the what do they call it, like all of his glory shots of the violence and everything like that, kind of like it, it goes away from the deconstruction, especially since it kind of glorifies the violence that Alan Moore was trying to undercut. And there was a great um kind of YouTube video essay about how in giving them these kind of like powers that are enhanced beyond human abilities, that it even – undercuts the novel even further because when you give them powers you kind of give them authority over normal human beings and therefore it makes sense that like they would pursue vigilante justice and stuff like that because they are inherently better than humanity where in the graphic novel the violence is just kind of like meh because they're normal and they're regular and therefore it's even sillier and even more goofy that these people would go out and um kind of fight tyranny like that uh so just want to know your thoughts really enjoy the podcast you know i learn a lot thank you guys so much awesome thank you diane um yeah you know it's such a hard decision to make as a filmmaker i imagine that because i i look back the the action scene that always comes to mind is the action scene where 
uh, Dan and Lori get cornered in an alleyway and there are all these kind of faceless thugs that want to rob them and they just kick the ever-living shit out of them. I revisited those panels in the graphic novel and even in the graphic novel, like, they are kicking ass. Now, whether or not it, it's that they have superpowers or that they're just really good martial artists, that's a little bit more unclear. I mean, I guess you could say that certainly we don't see you know, Lori kicking somebody and them like flying and hitting a wall and then the wall crumbles like we do in the in the Zack Snyder version. But this kind of goes back to this kind of weird tension that the movie has and that it's trying to deconstruct superheroes, but then during the action sequences, because it's a Hollywood movie, has to inhabit the aesthetic of a superhero movie. And so that comes with the dramatization of action to seem like really badass uh, which, you know, for probably half the paying audiences is what they came for. So it, it's a difficult thing to balance, but I do think that there's something to that. And by the way, that video essay, I talked about it in the uh, Watchmen podcast, but uh, I think Captain Christian, who's the YouTuber who did that essay, he says it better than I could um, and how that has a pretty profound effect. So I recommend everyone check that out. I mean, this goes to the whole question about violence in cinema anyway, right? Like, does it somehow detract from the point? Like someone like... Like Tarantino, for example, uses violence, but he's still engaged in some kind of postmodern pastiche, which oftentimes has elements of deconstruction in it as well. But I don't think the violence in, in Tarantino's films, like take Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example, at the end of the film, I don't think that the violence somehow undermines his retelling, his kind of like creative retelling of the story. And here's gonna this is going to sound really shitty, but I think it's just because Tarantino's a good filmmaker, whereas I'm not sure that Zack Snyder is. And... Uh, not that Zack Snyder's a bad filmmaker in a, an objective sense, but I think relatively, I don't think that he really, he's a master of certain storytelling techniques that would require the violence to to operate in the way that it could um, from within a different kind of like narrative framework, you know? And I think that's kind of ultimately the problem. That's why the film doesn't really work for me, is I think it's just a little too messy. Now, I haven't read the graphic novel, and I haven't watched the TV series, but from people that are close to me who are fans of the novel, they say that the TV series is way better and it's really excellent compared it to... It is really good. You should film. watch it, man. So I want to read the novel first. And I've actually been waiting. Like, I heard that if I read the novel first, it'll make more sense because there are certain things yes. that, like, you have to kind of understand a little bit. So, but, like, maybe that's just it. Maybe it's just, not to sound too, too reductive, but maybe it's just that Zack Snyder isn't that great of a technician, you know? It's so weird because half of the movie is this almost religious frame-by-frame, panel-by-panel recreation of the graphic novel, and yet, in some ways, it still feels like he missed the mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to move into the mailbag. You can hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. This first one is from Tevin. He says, this is my first time reaching out to you guys because I love the content you come out with, but there's a movie I feel is missing from your channel, and that movie is The Place Beyond the Pines. This movie stuck with me, and I think I know what it is, but I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on the movie. Going to get my first tattoo because of this one. Thank you guys so much. Keep up the good work. Yeah, I, I wanted to include this email because uh, The Place Beyond the Pines is also kind of like a special movie that I always talk about because... I loved the shit out of that movie when I saw it. I was with my buddy, and we were, like, the only ones in this movie theater. And, you know, as I said earlier in this podcast, sometimes it's just about what you had for lunch that day or how much sleep you got. Sometimes how a movie affects you can just be something really nebulous like that. And this movie, The Place Beyond the Pines, just worked for me. 
really hardcore. I was just so into it the whole time, so much so that I've made a vow that I'm never going to watch the movie again because I know that it's not going to affect me like that a second time. Have either of you guys seen that movie? I, I'm a big Derek C. in France homer. I think that he is fantastic, and I love Place Beyond the Pines so much to the point that I did see it multiple times, and it's one of those films that like, I even went through and watched all kinds of director commentaries and interviews because I just wanted to know what his position on it was, and this is the only thing I'll say about it that I think is just interesting, especially for our the person who emailed us. He says that this film is all about legacy. And the reason was because he wrote this film and he made this film when he was first becoming a father. And he was thinking to himself, what am I going to be able to pass on to my child? And then he started thinking about his own relationship with his father. And obviously there are some interesting themes in this about uh, father-son kind of relations. And so there is something interesting. And and it's something that me, I, I don't have kids, but it's something that I have thought about myself is like legacy. Do I care about that? Does that matter to me? Like... Like, if I write a book, is that something that I can pass on to the world? Can that be my child? If I have podcasts that are going to be, like, you know, bouncing around the fucking internet for the next couple decades, is that something that I can that I can enjoy as a legacy that I'm handing down to something? Or just to, to like, to other people? Is that something that matters? Does that have the same kind of impact as, like, having a child? And I, I just don't know. And I think there's something really interesting in this film because it kind of explores that, uh, at least from, from the director's perspective. And so I really got into that, uh, watching that because I think that's something that's really fascinating to me well then I guess Tevin with all the talks of legacy and permanence him getting a tattoo is appropriate for this movie I totally support it by the way get get your tattoos brother get your tattoos oh yeah (laughs) all right this next one is from I'm gonna screw this up J-O-A-O how I don't yeah from Brazil he's At the ending of Watchmen, when all the countries unite against the common enemy, I think it doesn't make sense at all since Dr. Manhattan is an American hero and the Soviet Union would probably take the attack as an an American act of war. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Thanks for the great show during the quarantine. See, I think that Zack Snyder tried to account for this by making it that he attacks multiple cities, big cities around the world. Because in the graphic novel, it's only New York and Mm -hmm. only like 3 million or 4 million people get killed. But in the movie, Dr. Manhattan attacks six cities simultaneously, and it's like 15 million people that die, which is an insane number. Uh, But I think, I don't know. I mean, does it still make sense? I don't know. I, I kind of brought this up during the podcast that it makes a lot more sense to me that a giant squid would be just so out of nowhere that it would <laughs> that it would make the entire world come together rather than this yeah like as you said american force i mean maybe it would have antagonized the rest of the world against america because you know they in a sense didn't contain their big powerful nuclear weapon hmm. yeah I, yeah you know I, I i don't know yeah I, i'll be honest i don't even really like the movie i it, it kind of actually annoys me and i, I and i feel like I feel like I really missed out by not reading the graphic novel because I have all of these like people that have read it that are like, oh my God, it's so amazing. And then I saw the movie and I was like, eh. And they're like, no, you don't understand, man. You don't understand. So I, I feel like I just need to get into that, that novel before I can even have any more formulated thoughts on this. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because most people who, I, or I feel like most people who don't like the movie, it's because <clears throat> it's of the lack of fidelity to the original text. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. We got a couple more emails, but we're running a little bit over. But before we go, Lars, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Well, I guess um, the novel Nietzsche and the Verbs, published by Melville House, it's out now. Lars Iyer is my name. Please um, investigate. Cool. Is there? Uh, are you on social media or anything? Sure, utterly spurious. That's my um, Twitter handle. Utterly spurious. Yeah, if you guys can hit me up, owls underscore at underscore dawn is my podcast uh it's owls at dawn you guys know that if you've listened to the podcast for any extended period of time you can find me on twitter austin underscore hayden um that's it man hit me up oh fuck my first film came out i forgot um well it's my first feature that i've produced but uh been involved with a lot of other stuff but it's this uh documentary adaptation of the book inventing the future post-capitalism in a world without work and we turned it into a cinematic adaptation. It's a, an avant-garde documentary directed by um, experimental avant-garde wunderkind uh, Isaiah Medina, who, if you're interested in the experimental world of cinema, his previous feature, 8888, was on a bunch of like top ten lists and things like that. So, But it's called Inventing the Future, and because of various reasons, because of quarantine, because the festival circuit has completely been postponed slash dismantled and theaters are closed everywhere, we just decided to release it for free online. So you can go to YouTube, and watch it. It's weird as fuck. I'm just letting people know. It is uh, montage and crazy and dense philosophical, uh, experimental, not a typical documentary in any, in any sense, but it's quite interesting. And if you know the book, Inventing the Future, then you'll find some interesting th- uh, thematic themes to work through. But yeah, just go to YouTube, Inventing the Future. Cool. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Lars, for joining us. Austin, as always, thank you so much. Um, we will be back in two weeks with a movie that I have not yet decided, but we will be back. You can count Much on it. Much love, everybody. Uh, so that's it from us today, Wash guys. Your hands. Thanks a lot. Peace. <laughs>